I want to welcome Dr. Jeff and Mr. Larry Leopard up on the stage. Sam Rule, welcome. I think Dylan is on his way. I want to just, you know, po pose my one question obligatorily and then seed it off. But to Dr. Jeff and Lawrence Leopard, and P as well, the only three, I think, who were conscious and aware of Enron as it was happening. Walk us through the scale and scope of Enron in those moments versus what people have been witnessing with FTX over the last week. Well, it's pretty much the same. You know, same story, different actors, right? Complete fraud. A lot of smart people fooled, you know. They just changed the, just changed the people. Fake numbers, et cetera, et cetera. That's uh, very heartwarming to hear. <laughs> well, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And one thing that's different about this is the guy's politically protected, it would seem. I, you know, the puff pieces and the narrative he's spinning, it makes one wonder. You know, it kind of looks like he might have a way to get out of it, or he thinks he has a way to get out of it, certainly based on how he's been tweeting, although I think those tweets are going to be used in court against him. You know, and welcome, and also... These guys are the smartest. They're the smartest guys in the room, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, yeah. Total, total frauds, and it's a bad look. But the good thing is, you know, it gets all wiped out. So, I mean, I, I, I think, I guess maybe this, this hour we'll talk about it some more, um, and especially because Caitlin's here, who's been, who's been all over this, uh, the leverage dynamics in this market for the last few years. So, would love to hear you chime in on this as we're going. But yeah, it looks like there's a whole lot of credit impairment out there, and you know. It, like additional liquidity, you're seeing Genesis come out and say, hey, yeah, uh, we were looking for a billion dollars by Monday. Liquidity does not solve a solvency problem. And I I don't really think people can understand the, the size of the impairment out there when, you know, FTX collapses and then the next biggest lending desk and the space still standing collapses as well. It's ugly. Dr. Jeff, I know I've seen you on mic and re-mic. <laughs> Are you just baiting me, Q? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I'm just baiting me because I'm one of the old guys here. So, so yeah, I mean, it, just to Larry's point, right? This is just the, the same story, different characters, different year. Yeah, anytime there are loopholes to be found and exploited, there are bad characters who do it. And, and there are no greater and larger loopholes than in the unregulated crypto industry. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm glad Caitlin is up here too. Larry, it's awesome that you're here. Good to see both of you guys. I'd love to get your guys' take on this and where you think we go from here, like in terms of regulation, in terms of what this means for crypto. Will there ever be an end to this clown world circus that we're all a part of? Will will crypto enthusiasts ever learn, or, or or are we just stuck with this for the next you know the next hundred years? You guys have any take on that? I'll weigh in quickly. I mean, I, I think ultimately when all the shit coins die, this problem will go away. But sadly, that's going to take some time. I mean, Dogecoin still has a multi-billion-dollar market cap. In terms of the actual regulatory moves that are being made, I throw it over to Caitlin, who is an absolute expert in this subject and and brilliant in the way that she's uncovered it. I think she's probably a lot closer to what the regulators are doing. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on. I, I just came in to listen. <laughs> and Dylan, you guys and you at Bitcoin Magazine, all of you have just done an amazing job covering this. I think, you know, Larry can confirm our private conversations about Sam. It's kind of funny because I know the Bitcoin Magazine folks shared that clip from the Miami Bitcoin conference in June 2021 of my debate on this topic with Sam and shared it again this morning. And uh, Sam and I had a conversation after st backstage afterward. It's the one and only time we ever met. And I was trying to explain it to him. He was listening, but it was clear he wasn't hearing, you know, hearing, but not listening rather is probably the better analogy. He didn't want to hear it really. And uh, he stayed away from me after that. And it's actually kind of funny because Larry and I, have talked about him. We we knew something was up. I actually knew more than I ever public than I ever publicly or privately said that there were problems here, and I knew that there were there there were 
there were, yeah, there were problems. <laughs> Let's put it that way. There were things that were going on that were, that were likely not legal, shall we say. And some of us in the industry called it. And Dylan, I can't call you out enough for, for this. But it's so interesting who called it and who didn't. It tends to be more the Bitcoiners who called it. Not, not 100%, but, but definitely more the Bitcoiners. So the real question at this point isn't, what's the impact of Bitcoin? There's been a lot of conversation among the Bitcoiners that the Gox failure was much more meaningful to Bitcoin at the time. It was 650,000 Bitcoins at the time. It was 6% of the market. It was pretty much the only exchange. I got goxed. I've been public about that. It was the cheapest tuition I ever paid, having been through that experience. But the other issue is the network wasn't as decentralized back then. And now it's, you know, honey badger don't care, right? It's so decentralized that it's whistling past the graveyard of the train wreck, to mix metaphors, of what's going on in crypto. And it's just fine. And it just keeps on appending blocks. And we just keep seeing more and more building going on, including on the Lightning Network. And you know, that's the signal through all this noise, for sure. Caitlin, what's pretty crazy is that, and I, I actually remembered that clip before uh, I started circulating again. I saw it live when you guys were having that having that debate. Um, and, and instantly when this went down and, and you were just being vocal about the leverage like this, this whole time, I, I thought of that clip. And it's pretty crazy to think about, you know, going back to it as he's saying this in front of a, you know, packed audience of four or 5,000 people that you know Alameda had like jerry rigged the back end to where they can't get liquidated and they're borrowing from user funds and punting seed rounds and Solana coins and you know the whole 9 yards and just just to think that you know this was all under the floor the floorboards per se yeah, let me- you know like they might have got it. I mean it's good it's good that we like got it out of it out of the system let me just add something here too i mean there was a tell here you know it if anyone was paying attention and it was, you know, I mean, obviously Dylan called it out. Corey called it out. Lots of other Bitcoiners called it out. We all saw it. I encourage people to go back and look at my thread from a few days ago where I put up the Bankman video or Google Bankman, you know, there is a box. I mean, he basically described a Ponzi scheme in a video where he talked about creating a box, putting tokens into it, selling a few of the tokens at a high price. And then guess what? All the tokens had a high price. And he didn't quite connect the dots and say, then use some of those tokens to buy more tokens. But but you could kind of fill in the blanks. And this guy told us what he was. I mean, this was not a mystery to anyone paying attention, you know, unless you were a partner at Sequoia and thought you were a master of the universe. And just, you know, on a video call, you know, you were high fiving your partners and saying this is the best CEO you'd ever seen. And you're going to send him four hundred million dollars. I mean, you know, to anyone with any inkling of, you know, financial knowledge, due diligence, et cetera. I mean, I've been doing this for 40 some odd years. You just knew this guy was a bad guy. It was just obvious. Yeah. Well, and you and I, t- Larry, talked about some of the signs along the way. And the the first concrete sign that I that I remember pointing to that something was really off was when he bought the Voyager shares and ended up tripping over. This was pre-Voyager bankruptcy. So this would have been, what, early June? It ended up tripping over the 10% ownership level, which triggered Alameda to have to file disclosures with the Toronto Stock Exchange. And in response, they canceled the shares that they bought. Who does that? Because <laughs> I mean, literally, right? That, and I remember I, I actually told a lot of people at that time, this is a huge red flag. You don't cancel shares that you buy. Right. in order to avoid to avoid disclosure requirements another another red flag a month ago he called for crypto tarp publicly at the DC fintech week when he was being interviewed by Kate Rooney from CNBC and I talked to her after I was on stage right before him and talked to her right after she was done interviewing him and asked her what what did he say because I, I didn't hear it live and she told me he called for crypto tarp and, and I started laughing and and I said that is that is actually a bad sign yeah. because it, it, he knew he had a balance sheet problem and he was trying to you know get the government to to bail him out and you start stringing some of those those you know things that make you go hmm kind of events together that a solvent company would not be doing and it's pretty clear that this had been a problem all along yeah mark cohody's a brilliant short seller said in one of his tweets i I couldn't see it on my thread because some for some reason he's blocked me he's kind of a strange dude but anyway he, he basically said this thing ticked all the boxes for fraud he's got like a list of 10 items that he uses to determine when something's a fraud he said it ticked them all 
and it certainly seems to be the case. Also, it's pretty fishy during the summer when he's coming out and bailing out, you know, quote unquote bailing out. And I don't really like the docs weren't public, but there was there was some leaks and, and like all the term sheets they were putting out for these credit lines were like completely voidable. You know, they didn't actually extend anything. It was just like, you know, it was just basically like it, it was it was nothing brokers. <laughs> And and people were like, oh, JP Morgan of crypto, and it's like, well, where's this? Where's this guy getting all all of the money? Because like maybe the FTX exchange is is just that good. It wasn't. And and if you talk to anybody that actually uses the thing, like finance is much more liquid. And and there was people like like really everyone that traded size there, noticeably like, yeah, there's there's definitely a lag here, like in terms of like the execution of these trades. And and Sam is like, oh, don't worry, guys, it's like a front end thing. It's your website, like. It's this or that, but there was like, there was a lot of questions and then you can kind of compile them all together. And then in your final day as, you know, FTT is, 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 you know, you're levered against FTT and you see Alameda hot wallets just flooding into, to FTX. And I posted on Twitter. I was like, Hey guys, can anyone send me Alameda cold wallet details? And there wasn't one response. Like they, they didn't even have oh, a cold wow. wallet. There was, they don't even have a cold wallet. It was just like, they, you know, so, oh, so that, yeah. and and now, and now I find out that after the fact, they, you know, Alameda or FTX didn't even have a bank account. So if you wired funds to FTX, you just wired it to the Alameda bank account. You know, all this stuff. Oh my God, like, that's yeah. wild. Hey, Dylan. Massive, massive fraud. Has that been confirmed? Do we know that or is that just rumor? I, I think Sam admitted it. Interesting. Over, D, over DM. So yeah, there's, there's definitely a whole lot of, you know, questionable, questionable stuff that went down, but you know, been there, done that. They've they've obviously blown up. But I think it's yeah, it's just it's just a lesson. Like I I was actually DM'd documents from like Almeida's pitch deck in 2019 over the summer, and it was literally like Madoff style Ponzi returns up only, no drawdowns during the crypto bear market. And they they said we offer one product, 15% annualized loans, and it was it was really appalling. And I I honestly thought it was fake because of how fraudulent it was. And it turns out it wasn't fraudulent, you know? That was just, they, they, they started FTX and the FTT ICO to keep the gig going, which is just pretty wild to think about, you know, because just two years later after that, they were, they were the smartest guys in the room to, uh, to a lot of people. Just wild. I mean, like, the, is it the largest financial fraud in, in history? Gotta be. Looks like it, yeah. Gotta be. I mean, and this is what, this is what happens when you, have a, when you have an ecosystem where, I mean, Look, LTCM did the same thing. You know, you had John Merriweather doing the exact same thing. You know, and to a degree, you had MF Global with Corzine doing the same thing. The difference is in both of those cases, you know, you had a Fed, you had a system, you had the parties behind them to come together to bail the whole thing out. And in this particular case, there's no one to bail these guys out. And that's why they went to zero so damn fast. I mean, it's really quite stunning how quickly it happened. I remember seeing some of Dylan's tweets, you know, when CZ did his thing and Dylan had this great tweet along the lines of, you know, CZ has chosen blood. Well, no shit. And I thought, well, this could be a problem. And man, seven days later, it was over, right? It was yeah. like two days. <laughs> yeah. Hey, whatever, I'm exaggerating. Two days later, it was over. Yeah. I see DBs up on the stage. What's up? What's up, boss man? Get your hand up. Hey, I had a quick question for uh, Caitlin. Can you speak to contagion fallout exposure that any of ftx's banking partner would be exposed to or could be exposed to i've seen some commentary by a rich teo from paxos who's been kind of differentiating i think we was calling it remote bankruptcy where your your assets basically can't be encumbered in a bankruptcy process can you speak to any of the nuance there and specifically kind of ftx's how it kind of interacts with the trade buy yeah, thank you for the question, because I'm going to take the gloves off. Wyoming, my <laughs> native state, had this all right from the beginning. And Senator Lummis was correct in her tweet a couple of days ago that said, if the Wyoming laws were actually enacted, this wouldn't have happened in the United States. And it's so interesting how there was, I mean, obviously, the, the Wyoming Special Purpose Depository Institutions are not yet operating, and, and you know what's happening with, with that situation. But the whole idea was to set up a type of custodian that is 
respectful of property rights and allows the owner of the Bitcoin to keep the title to the asset, just like when you park your car at a valet parking garage or you turn in your coat at a coat check and you get a ticket back, you're not turning over title to your car or your coat to the custodian. You're just giving them temporary possession of it, but you legally still own it. And that's not the way custody works anywhere else. Custody everywhere else, including in securities, but also as we're learning the hard way in, in, in these unregulated institutions and also in the state licensed money transmitters and to some extent even the trust companies, it, when they go into bankruptcy, you are a general creditor. And that's the sad thing. We saw that with Celsius, 29,000 people who were their customers who thought they had a, you know, might have thought they had a custody relationship, learned that, that, that those were actually just IOUs and they're now general creditors in a bankruptcy and their personal information is getting doxxed by the bankruptcy court. That's going to happen here with FTX, although I saw an interest and they, they said now they have a million creditors. But what's fascinating is I saw that there's the, the Bahamas government is challenging whether the bankruptcy filing in the United States was proper. And I've been back and forth with a couple of bankruptcy experts. I'm certainly not one. I know enough to be dangerous. But there is a, an approach, a concept in, the, in U.S. bankruptcy law called the presumption against extraterritoriality which means that US, the U.S. will not project its own bankruptcy law elsewhere into the world. And you have to have a proper U.S. nexus in order to be able to have the bankruptcy be done in the United States. And it sounds like ba Bahamas is objecting to that. So I don't know. I mean, grab the, grab the popcorn. It's not clear that this is even necessarily going to stay in the United States because there, there are going to be challenges to that. But if it does stay in the United States, Everybody, all those million people are going to get doxxed. They're going to get listed in the general creditor list because that's what happens in bankruptcy. So now let's come back to how Wyoming had it right, because that wouldn't happen if it was a Wyoming special purpose depository institution with whom folks were custodying their crypto, right? Kraken has gotten a charter, not yet operating. My company, Custodia Bank, also charter, not yet operating. But we're, but, but we're designed to allow you to stay outside of the bankruptcy. The, the, the bankruptcy estate is the phrase that's used by the lawyers. Essentially, the, the analogy is if, if, if the garage goes bankrupt, when your car is parked in it, you can still go get your car and drive it away. You don't have to wait for the bankruptcy judge to tell you, yes, that's not at an asset of the garage. It's yours. You can take it whenever you want. You're not stuck as a general creditor in the bankruptcy. That is huge, especially when it comes to an, a complex offshore bankruptcy like this, where, gosh, it, it's, I, I, I'm worried just looking at the balance sheet that the bankruptcy costs themselves might eat up most of the assets that are left there. And so the, the recovery, and this is what we've seen, frankly, with Gox and Quadriga, we've, we've seen that the, and even with cred, the loss given default is above 90%. When these, when these crypto intermediaries go bankrupt, the recoveries is, is really pennies on the dollar for, for the customers. And, and the whole legal structure really matters if you can, if you have to use a custodian, and, and by the way, I'm sure some folks are thinking, I'm advocating for a custodian. No, I'm the same way Jesse Powell is. Don't custody your assets with a custodian unless you have to. And the and most of you don't have to. And so not your keys, not your coins. Best thing you can do is educate yourself on how to self-custody your Bitcoin. All the Bitcoiners all along have been saying that until we're blue in the face and we can't say it enough and, and can't help folks make sure that you know how to, how to self-custody your Bitcoin. But it, it's a great question. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. The Bitcoin Magazine Podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. 
with open enrollment upon us, what if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you can invest in Bitcoin instead? With CrowdHealth, you can choose your doctors, put aside money for your health expenses in your own account, and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. If a large expense comes up, CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin. Right now through the end of the year, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. Bitcoin is for everyone. Lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin Magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It featured articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your annual subscription today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Caitlin, can you can you speak to the if there's any specific liability that the bank has in terms of clearing transactions, et cetera, as as FTX is going under? And how would the bank not have known or detected this was going on? Well, I can't speak to any of the banks that were involved with FTX. And of course, to be clear, Custodia Bank's not operating. So obviously we're, we're not involved, although you, you might surmise from what I, what I just said about my interactions with Sam that not, it would not have been likely that FTX would have qualified for an account were, were Custodia to be, op- to be um, operating. Because, I, you know, like Chamath put out his, his, his video, you know, he did some basic due diligence and discovered that they didn't even t- uh, check the basic due diligence boxes. Right. And banks are supposed to be doing those things. There's, that is one of the upsides of know your customer laws. The banks are supposed to be watching for things like this. But I, I well, can't can, speak to can, any of the specifics. Can I rephrase the question? then? Because I, I, I know nothing about how the due diligence of a, uh, how a bank does due diligence behind the scenes. But, you know, you would you would imagine that if you had an account at, a, at the bank and let's say you were five percent of all the, the assets at the bank and you were getting a whole bunch of wires into your account all the time, that the bank would know whose account that is, that the bank would know, they would know if money was going into Alameda's account or if it was going into FTX Proper's account or if FTX was using a shell company and that shell company was doing a lot of transactions. Like, Do they peer into their customer behavior enough to be able to detect if there's like something shady going on like that? Well, I, I, can't, I can't speak to the specifics, but I can speak to the general requirements. The answer is yes. And every one of you have experienced it. And the Bitcoiners generally tend to complain about how much the banks surveil, right? And, and, and you know, in our industry, especially going back to 2017, so many of us individually and companies had our bank accounts closed in a wave of debanking that happened that started in the fall of 2017. So this is something where, generally speaking, the Bitcoiners have been very critical of the Bank Secrecy Act requirements and the, the notion that every customer of a bank is risk rated. And by definition, the, the, the crypto industry is one of the 30 or so industries that has been viewed as high risk. And so therefore, we're, the, the entire industry has a high risk rating. And that's why most banks won't service this industry. And you had a, a couple of banks have been talking about 
this as an attack vector on the industry. We, we really only have two banks that service this industry for, for, for U.S. dollar transactions. There, there are a few others that will service a few other companies. Like, for example, I think J.P. Morgan is a bank for Coinbase and Paxos, for example. That's been publicly disclosed. But you generally don't see banks serving this industry. Why is that? Because the Bank Secrecy Act does require the banks to risk rate their customers, and banks just don't want to do a lot of business with high-risk customers unless they specialize in it, which is what these two other banks have done, Silvergate and Signature. And I've talked about how important they were to the development of our industry because they were willing to take on those risks. But generally speaking, the way the Bank Secrecy Act works is the banks are required to know their customers and that they're also required to monitor transactions and file sus- suspicious activity reports when the activity is not does not comport with the the expected activity in the account. That's that's part of the reason why your banks are always asking you what's your income. And you know when you open an account, they will they will ask you how many wires do you expect to send because they're setting you up as a in in a risk rating in their system and then if your activity is different than what you predicted that's a red flag and then they're going to go investigate and they may come and ask you questions that's how that's how this works and so that's generally what happens and I'll leave you to conclude because we don't know the facts and I don't want to allege or allude to any facts that's why I asked you if you knew whether the 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 things that have been talked about on Twitter are just rumor or are they fact? We don't know that. And so I don't I would definitely not encourage folks to 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 get into conjecture here. DB, check out what I posted in the nest and who knows if this is true or not, but just just the last two slides, it's it's one person saying like this is the the bank account I was told to wire money to uh, FTX OTC. And it's just it's literally Alameda research and the title and then the the DM, the second one is is a DM with the Vox reporter, and it's Sam being like, "Yeah, well, we started off just wiring money to, to Alameda, and then three years later, it was like, oh, we received eight billion dollars through Alameda's account." So, I mean, who knows if it's accurate or not? But I mean, I look at Silvergate down eleven percent today, and then you know they had the Silvergate money laundering and, charges and Signature. Like, they're both yeah, down a lot, which, like thirty percent, forty percent. Yeah, again, not, not great. But whether that's actually true or whether this is the market shooting first and asking questions later will only come out over time. The The implication of that, though, Dylan, is is we have two banks that service this industry. And this has been something Ryan Selkis at Masari has been calling out as a risk for a while. It's one of the reasons why the Wyoming Special Purpose Depository Institutions exist. We're trying to solve, help solve that problem, bring in more banks that specialize in serving these customers that are deemed high risk. And, and, and so the it's just something to to watch as from an impact on the industry if the two banks end up retrenching. And again, I'm not predicting that anybody is going to retrench, but this may be a situation where the where it's more rumor than fact, and there there may be more you know of this sort of shooting first and asking questions later. So I am not encouraging anyone to get over your skis here. From from a historical perspective, what happened? Like who banked Madoff? And and what happened to them? Like it was it one of the major banks? I would guess a lot of them, Larry. Do you know? Yeah, JP Morgan actually bank made off. Yeah, they did. So you know, and they didn't suffer any pain for it, and they knew something was wrong. I mean, they they had to have known something was wrong, but it is what it is. You know, they, they were making money off of it, no doubt. And that's why they probably didn't report it. Well, and I, and I also wonder a little bit with the risk with these banks. Like, yes, like a lot of crypto companies use these banks, but these banks also interact with USDC and USDC interacts with a lot of other counterparties. And so, like, is there some level of counterparty risk or credit risk that USDC faces with some of these financial institutions as well? And, and it's, you know... What does that mean? And I've also kind of been scratching my head a little bit about why why all of these just have stopped processing USDC on Solana. And, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen an example before of a, of a stablecoin kind of dying on a specific protocol and what that even means. Either of you'll have thoughts on that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. Anybody else? 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's more so just like a. I mean, it was it was more of an FTX thing. I mean, I don't know the the long history of stablecoins on Solana, but I do know that they were one of the first ones to to kind of have, you know, like like Coinbase. You could you could do like ETH, you know, ETH based withdrawals, but but FTX had all the the soul the wrap soul tokens, and so well, maybe maybe it's just like Binance and everyone else just kind of sticking a fork in them. I, I'm not really sure. Well, I guess what I'm asking is like, like they, I'm guessing that, you know, USDC on Solana would follow the same minting and burning processes as USDC on any other protocol. And that it's that it's circle at the end of the day that has some process for ensuring that, you know, a fraudulent party couldn't just mint a bunch of USDC and inject it into the system. And so, you know, whatever whatever the risk is there with Solana, does that also extend to, you know, Tron, for example, or, you know, some of these other parties? And, and uh, I just don't know enough, enough about how these stable coins actually interop with the, the, the banking system, kind of get an understanding of that risk. Yeah, I think the, the scary thing is, and, and I was listening to that, uh, Larry, you were saying something about that, that Mark guy and, and, the, and the, you know, he's like a, a known short seller with the, with the banks. And, and Caitlin, your point about like, you know, firing from the hip on rumors is, is totally true and in, in finance and, and in crypto. I mean, it's, it's no different from the legacy system. But, you know, if there is, you know, somewhat of a just because of the, the rumors or because of, you know, the potential for a fraud case. I mean, we, we don't know. This is more so just speculation than anything. But if there's like, you know, I mean, these are fractional reserve banks, right? So like if there is a kind of a run, right, to and, and, and like the crypto native companies don't really have many places to go, but just, you know, I think these things are non-zero probability that could get that could get pretty hairy uh, for an ecosystem that doesn't really have any options. Um, well, and that's especially... what Ryan Sel- Selkis has been talking about. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think that's just that's just one of the things I'm, I'm looking at is like, Okay, you have not only like the companies, but you know you have like some stable coins on these on these rails, uh, and you know the, this like the Send network. And hearing some, you know, I got some McBirdies in my ear in my DMs that are saying like certain certain counterparties as of yesterday, not not too well known, just some some like very small scale institutional players have alerted their clients that they're no longer accepting SEN, like SEN, Silvergate Exchange Network wires out of an abundance of caution and stuff like that just kind of flares my, you know, kind of senses up a little bit, kind of rings some alarm bells when, when you see like an institution say, hey, we're no longer accepting this crypto exchange network wire out of an abundance of caution. And, you know, the stock's down. Fifty percent month over month, and you know, ten percent day over day. It's and, it's, it's and are you referring to Falcon X? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess. Did, yes, was I mean, it confirmed like that, that that was true? Yeah, I mean, it was. They they sent it out to clients. So, so Falcon well, so X I, is not small. I mean, Falcon X is one of the biggest institution institutional cu- custodians. Or I don't even know exactly how they describe their platform, but they're big. But again, I'd yeah, be so careful here. Great. It, it, yeah, but there's a that may be rumor, it may be true, but one thing to caution everybody, there's there are laws in the United States against citing a bank inciting a bank run. There are actually laws against that. So so just I would just encourage everybody, take a deep breath. It may or may not be true. There's so many rumors floating around this sector right now. And you know, maybe this is where those of us who have the proverbial gray hair can think back to the times that we've been through the various financial crises, the 1994 bond market correction, the long-term capital management collapse in 1997, you know, the, the, the tech stock bubble bursting in 2001. And then of course the mortgage bubble bursting in 07 into 08 and 09 through the great financial crisis is the rumors fly. And it's not until afterwards that you see where the real truth was the sad thing about this sector is that there's definitely things move fast right and so the rumor mill can can move things a lot faster than they they otherwise might so i would just caution everybody especially when it comes to the banks just 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 definitely take a deep breath they are regulated they they're they're this is where you know if we can get to to the debate on should we be regulating companies or not in this sector and, and the same thing with the Bank Secrecy Act, right? The natural instinct is, wait a minute, shouldn't the banks have uncovered this? Well, there are, that's the reason in part that the Bank Secrecy Act exists, is to stop 
financial fraud, there's a the banks basically are required to surveil. And that's one of the reasons that it exists. And then it's it's funny, because for years, this industry has been so critical of those of those things because of the privacy invasion that it entails. And now you see some of the benefits of it, which is the banks, you know, really do step in and stop a lot of financial fraud. And it's the same kind of double-edged sword with regard to regulation. We're hearing a lot of calls for regulation right now. And well, it, 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 it does seem, Caitlin, like that Bitcoiners kind of get the worst of both worlds because it's like, good luck getting a bank account for us. Like we're forced to use, you know, one of just a few banks because they're the only people that will bank us yet. You know, so, we have to comply with all those rules, yet for some reason, like the actual frauds and Ponzi's that these rules are supposed to stop, like, doesn't really stop them. So it's like, okay, well, the good actors get punished, and then the bad actors are allowed to kind of run rampant, and none of those precautions actually, you know, stop them. Well, that's one That's one way to look at what's happened and. and that, that as a number of us have said, in the absence of regulatory clarity, the good guys have been held back, and I would put our our company in in that category. And the the criminals have been allowed to just run rampant in this sector. And 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 there are a lot of folks who in Washington who it, it's really one of two camps right now. One, from what I understand, is folks who just want to do nothing because they don't want to legitimize this industry at all. And therefore, they just want to let it burn itself out. And then the other camp is, no, we need to regulate it so the good guys can move forward and fill the void and the bad guys get, get, get pushed out by the good guys. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. What, what's your recommendation on how we move forward in that front? Because I'm hearing that like in, in D.C. right now, there is a, a vacuum that's been created because Sam was flooding so much money and he was having such an effect on the policy discussion that now that he's toxic, there's kind of like a, you know, uncertainty, let's just say. So uncertainty can give rise to, to new opportunities. Like what, what should we be pushing for right now? I mean, it, 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 candidly, enforcement of the existing laws would be one good thing, right? If there was fraud and theft, right? We, we, you know, it was. It's one of the crazy things about what's happened in the last few weeks is how many of the discredited people have been able to pop up and start firing shots at each other because they're not in jail and yeah. they, they still have access to their Twitter accounts. Yeah, I mean, I would add that you know. I mean, Sailor makes this point extremely well. All these people are dealing in unregistered securities. And I said this on a podcast or spaces I was on earlier today. I mean, they should all be regulated and and or now in jail as they as they continue to break the laws. And Gary Gensler, I mean, here's a guy who's head of the SEC who claims to know about Bitcoin because he taught a class on it. And he doesn't understand how dangerous these unregulated securities. I mean, how many people lost money in Luna? How many people lost money in FTX? I mean, these are two of the largest frauds that cost thousands and thousands of innocent people, perhaps stupid, but innocent people, you know, lots and lots of money. I mean, you know, ruined people in many, many respects. And our SEC is just sitting there. And, you know, I've heard this whole jurisdiction argument that, well, these things are offshore. You don't know where they are. You can't get to them. Fine. As long as there's one transaction that goes by wire between wherever they are and somebody in the United States, it's wire fraud under the U.S. code. I mean, Caitlin, you're a lawyer. I'm sure you can confirm that. And, and these people should be, you know, Gensler is, Gensler should be, he should be run out of town on a rail. I mean, the fact that these things have been allowed to occur right under his nose, you know, if, if I were in the Congress or the Senate, I would be going berserk that the SEC has been asleep at the switch while this blatant fraud has been taking place. To be clear, I'm not a practicing lawyer. I'm trained as one, but not a practicing lawyer. I just want to clarify fair, fair. that. But yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't you agree that that these, I mean, the whole notion that, well, we can't find out where these people are and they're offshore, therefore we can't touch them. I think I think that's incorrect. I mean, the legal stuff I've read would, su would suggest that as long as they touch U.S. consumers with wires, it's wire fraud. Yeah, I don't know. That's all going to definitely come out in the in the span of the investigation. I saw that the New York Attorney General is now investigating, and New York has the reason why that's especially significant is 
is New York actually has not only extraterritorial powers, but they also have something called the Martin Act, which is specific to New York. And boy, you know, this is where they've, the, the Martin Act has been used against a lot of financial fraudsters to, to, to bring them down because there's extra, extra liability in New York. So if, the, if there is a nexus to New York that they can prove, then the New York Attorney General can, can go after the, the, the folks who perpetrated all this. But yeah. Maybe this is a maybe this is a change of subject, but it's it's kind of tangential to what we're talking about in terms of the regulatory environment. I've posted a little bit about in the last few days about you know like there's been a huge hack post post FTX insolvency. They they you know they drained a bunch of addresses of Tether and Stakedeath and a bunch of other assets and basically dumped them all the ERC twenty tokens for Ethereum itself. So you know we're kind of what two months into the proof of stake world here where you know 50 to 60 percent of ethereum validators are either regulated centralized u.s institutions in the form of a coinbase or a kraken or you know lido which is a governance you know protocol token thing that's owned by all u.s venture capital firms you also have binance which you know maybe they comply maybe they don't the thing that i think is really really interesting at the very least and that no one knows. And I'm just posing questions because, you know, I just like to think these things through is what does it look like if, if Brian Armstrong and Jesse Powell, or, or I guess he resigned, but you know what I'm saying? Like these guys get a tap on the shoulder and what, you know, who knows, maybe the, this guy stakes his ETH, maybe he doesn't, maybe he's using tornado cash and proof of stake is like, I mean, it's literally just social consensus. Right. And so if they say, Hey, like, freeze the funds or don't process the transactions, you know, like 70% of ETH blocks are OFAC compliant, right? And they're still attesting to that chain. So like, you know, if you send a non-compliant transaction, the Coinbases of the world don't approve of it, but they still, you know, will build on that next block and say, this is a legit Ethereum chain. There's the reality that they could, you know, whether it's right or wrong, and I'm not one, you know, to, to be in favor of a heavy handed state, but if there's, you know, some huge regulatory clampdown that says, Hey, you guys can't, can't build on, you know, you know, black market Ethereum blocks, right? Like this, this is a possibility, right? Or am I just like out of my, out of my skis here? Maybe I'm just, you know, out of my skis. I just, I I think there's, there's huge risk here uh, in a proof of stake world where, where block production has been put from the, you know, from the hands of the miners proof of work to the hands of the stakers, which are, you know, centralized institutions. And so, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like quite the, quite the timeline for all this regulatory clampdown, you know, in a proof of stake world where like the 30th largest holder of Ethereum in the world is now, you know, a white hat hacker or, or, you know, a fraudster. Yeah, I'll agree with you, Dylan. I think the proof of stake dynamic here is like being totally exposed. Just if if FTX had the world's largest, you know, staking pool, and let's say BlockFi had a staking pool, and some of their other, you know, subsidiaries that they've gobbled up had a staking pool, then, you know, one person who was black hat could have rounded up a massive amount of the validators for Ethereum. And I mean, we'd be in you know, we Ethereum would be in a complete crisis right now. So I feel like that's a kind of an understated part of this, this, you know, controversy just because they didn't have a staking pool, but they absolutely could have. And, you know, it's just revealing these staking pools are only secure as the person who controls the keys to them. So yeah, I'll agree with you. Well, well, not only, not only that, but it's, it's the, you know, if like you talk to, some of the, you know, Ethereum proof of stake proponents. And, you know, I'm willing to entertain the idea that, you know, like, I don't want to be biased. I, I want to, like, keep an open mind to these things. I want to understand fundamentally how they work. And it's like, okay, in a, in a thought scenario, what happens if Brian Armstrong stops building on OFAC blocks? What do you guys do? And they go, oh, we, we, slash, we slash them. And it's like, okay, so you guys fork the chain. Great. And you think Circle is going to go with you? Right? <laughs> like, you think, you think Circle is going to drop? you know, and, and just, you know, give a middle finger to the treasury. Or, or you're making the example that, that, you know, in a bankruptcy proceeding, the assets being held, the, the 30th biggest ETH address is identified as, you know, really assets for the creditors. 
And, you know, is there some sort of restriction that can be placed upon these U.S.-based exchanges to try to recover those funds? Yeah, totally. Like, it's it's like completely an arbitrary thing. It's like, well, you can you can do this, right? Like, you're talking about slashing and, and you know, all this other stuff. Just slash slash their stake. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I it's it's so it seems also arbitrary which like they will tell you is a feature right like oh if there's a bad actor we'll just slash them off the network or we'll you know take their stake or whatever we'll impose a penalty on them and sam and i and sam if you want to you know speak up here and give your give your two cents we'd love to hear your thoughts but we spent days upon days upon days writing a breakdown of the theory merge and it was you know we this this stuff was just like you know, thrown together, slapped together on the fly. And then, you know, two guys coded it up and they're like, all right, this is it. And and they, they really don't even know the specific details of it. It's just like kind of working on the fly, which, you know, build fast and break things great, but it seems like no one, you know, some of these questions that you propose, like there's, there's no actual definitive answers. It's like, oh, well, the community will figure it out, which is, means the Ethereum foundation, you know? So it's an odd time. <laughs> Yeah, I think Sam accidentally his looks like his phone crashed or he dropped off the off the stage. Dylan, just giving you a heads up. Yeah, no worries. Anyone else want to chime in or throw anything around the room? I will just pose this question, um, Dylan. I brought up today on the stream how you know we very famously see leverage positions on Bitcoin. This FTT debacle to a large part to a leverage position on the FTT token. I don't know uh, how much saluting you've been doing on just, you know, how much leverage there is on ETH or if there's some sort of a risk there that could then also start to blow up certain large stakers like a Coinbase. But is that a Am I just on painkillers or is that something of legitimate concern? You may be on painkillers. Yeah, I mean, there's on-chain leverage. I, I don't think it's a, it's not at risk of blowing up stakers. I don't know. I heard some interesting stuff about Jump, Jump Capital today. And they're like a huge, huge holder of ETH. And, and they were, if you pay attention to like any of the FTX Alameda stuff or the Luna stuff or the Three Arrows stuff, like Jump's been in every single blow up. They were also, you know, they took like a $500 million hit in a... A hack on like a kind of a, a chain bridge earlier in the year. So like if they wind down, they're gonna you know be selling a couple billion dollars of ETH. So I don't know. That's probably probably a catalyst. That's pretty bearish. You know, one of one of many here. I wish I could invest into class action law firms right now because I feel like there's about to be a lot of money made on that front. Yeah, the whole thing is bullish lawyers, isn't it? <laughs> I'd be curious to hear. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm shutting up. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I, I'd be curious to hear how everybody thinks this is gonna play out over a, you know, three month time frame, six month time frame, twelve month time frame, in terms of the public perception of these events. You know, we see these puff pieces coming out from New York Times about Sam Bankman Freed. Just be curious to hear everyone's thoughts. I'll turn it over to a cycle veteran. I'm not, you know, kind of doing this for the first time, so we'd love to hear someone else. Yeah, I mean hey, give us your thoughts, man. Yeah, yeah, D++, you're up on stage. We'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts. You know, I, I, I'm I not good at predicting things. I have been around for more than one cycle. You know, I've I've been around since 2013. So I saw Mt. Gox. I saw the ICO boom and bust. I've seen this DeFi NFT monstrosity. So I, I, I mean, from where I'm sitting, I always think when people lose funds and people get wrecked, I, I assume they're going to stop their degen behavior. And yet in these spaces that we've been hosting, we still see people trying to get yield on their Bitcoin. So I don't know what is going to deter folks from playing these stupid games and winning stupid prizes. I just don't know. All I can do is just continue to usher people towards Bitcoin only and self-custody. That's that's the best I can do. And you know, anyone who's listening, self-custody, it's it's not super hard. It just takes a little bit of focus 
get yourself a ledger, a trezor or a cold card, you know, take 24 words and secure them on paper and maybe on steel for larger amounts and boom, you know, and if you have any questions, you can even message me and I'll help you. Donna, Joe and Brad, it's great to have you on the stage. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Can I chime in here? Yes, please. Oh, great. I would interpret the question slightly differently. So I think, you know, as we know, just assuming that there's, there's, you know, good, good capital still around for building. I think that, you know, kind of backing up a little bit on what D plus plus said, I think it's, it's the time also to make some of the onboarding and the the ways in which you can, you know, kind of streamline getting, getting your Bitcoin, putting it on a hard wallet. I know there's some people that are working on insurance, but also, you know, there are a number of institutions that have started to get into this area that are our custodians, as we saw, BNY Mellon, et cetera. I think what it's you know incumbent on the industry to do is to try and make sure that those those players, I mean, assuming you know you're of the the elf that wants them in it, um, that they that they understand that this is this is not you know it might might be prevalent, it might be in the news, but this is not the direction we want to go. We we should not be going, and we should show them that all the companies that got in trouble are centralized. They have egocentric. Uh, CEOs. They lack the controls that one would normally have in any kind of a business. And so that if we're going to move into using other custodians that are uh, that are uh, trusted and and you're of the elk that doesn't want to self-custody, we really need to make sure that those kind of people are not going to have these problems. We also need to figure out, you know, with the regulators, where is where is the where are the uh, touch points for KYC AML? I mean, of course, we know that these on-ramps and off-ramps are the touch point for that. And so to the extent that you're going to have some kind of other uh, uh, on, uh, a token that will have your KYC AML, so you don't have to always go back into these, these, these regulated entities in order to do something with your, with your, with your Bitcoin or, or other digital asset that you want to use. I think that though I, though I particularly like Bitcoin, I do think that there are other uses that are coming along the pipe, whether it's the tokenization of securities or things like that, which are really very interesting. Those are not those are securities. There's no doubt it says security tokens in the title. I think that's important. And just backing up a little bit on on the regulation, I had an interesting class because I, I teach today and we went through, for example, FTX and all the problems that were there. And then if you go through all those problems and you compare what the regulation should be for DeFi, almost every one of those problems don't exist in DeFi. You don't have the centralized CEO. You don't have the custody problem. You don't have all of these. So if, in fact, we can now make the regulators understand why DeFi cures those problems and at the same time have appropriate regulation in in the centralized exchanges and just keep teaching people all the time, how to be able to self custody and have better uh, better ways for them to be able to do it and feel more secure. That's can I uh, give a, a counterpoint to that? Yes. So I think that the uh, next three, six, twelve months are going to be absolutely brutal. I think that the there is not a good faith discussion to be had with regulators around the problem. It, it, I think that this gives them a pretense to do. Whatever they want to do, I think that the answer they'll probably come up with is the answer that the bank banking system uses, which we is we need more regulated custodians. And so they're probably going to push for you to actually store your bitcoins with someone David, who is you, a re- you step regulated. Back from the mic a little bit. It's it's peaking. Sorry, just say that again. Bit. Just step back from the mic just a little bit. Oh, okay, peaking. sorry. My, my speakers are blown, so I'm like shouting into the speaker box. So uh, I think that the they're going to push for coin to be stored with regulated custodians, regulated by them. And so I think they're actually going to come after non-custodial coin. I mean, as has been clear from their actions over the past few years, like that's what they want to, you know, that's what they want to ban. So I think that this is going to be pretty brutal on the regulatory front. I think it's going to be very brutal on the adoption front, I think. It's going to be very difficult. I mean, I've, I've had, I don't know, a few hundred calls the past week trying to articulate to people what just happened. And I think for your average everyday Bitcoiner, it's going to be very dif- difficult to articulate why this doesn't affect Bitcoin, why Bitcoin is different. I think 
you know, it's, you know, FTX was holding Bitcoin. So, I mean, it's not, you're, you really have to drill into, you know, the benefits of holding Bitcoin that's non-custodial and like you lose people. So I think on the adoption side, we're going to be set back. On the institution side, I think that this is a total catastrophe. I think you have brands that have just come into the space, just written big checks, $100 million checks, $500 million checks. And now the public egg on their face from their from their investments blowing up is really damaging to their brand. I mean, imagine uh, what was the firm that SBF came from? I was reading some, you know, sob story today about Jane how their brand Street. Jane Street, you know, Jane Street, one of the, the, the power brokers of Wall Street. And now they have a stain on their on their face. BlackRock, you know, invested in this. Like if I'm an investor with any product that Tiger invested into or BlackRock invested into or Bravo's company, I forget his private equity firm, I'm going to be like, hey, is your due diligence that you did on this investment the same due diligence process you ran on that Ponzi scheme that you all invested into and promoted? Like, you know, this is a really bad look on these firms. I haven't even quite gotten to grips yet with the legal contagion that's about to happen from the bankruptcy cases that are about to, to happen and the class action lawsuits that are going to happen. Like I, somebody just sent me a DM talking about the, what happened to Citibank's and JP Morgan's share price after Enron got caught. This is the level of fraud that we're dealing with. This is Enron times two. Like this is going to be how we still talk about the dot-com era and, and Enron really kind of was like, the closing out of the dot-com era, if I'm getting my, my timeline right here, like this is what the meme that's about to be created in mainstream culture about crypto more broadly and about the scale of, of this scam. And I think it's going to capture so many people in it. I'm like, as, as Caitlin was talking about the, like the, the liability that a bank has in this, dude, I, I think there's just no way that the, the FTX's banking partners didn't realize what was going on here. I mean, you know, FTX had a million customers. If I bank Alameda, they're a hedge fund. They should be taking funds from like a hundred different counterparties or a few hundred counterparties tops. Not a million people sending hundred dollar wires and ten thousand dollar wires. Like that should have been red alarm glare. I don't. I, it's impossible that they could have missed that. To be honest. So, I mean, I don't even know what the implications of all that is. So, yeah, I think that this is a this is a shit show and it's going to slow everything down. The, the good side to it is that, like, this is going to stop our industry from becoming Wall Street 2.0, which is like what was happening. And, you know, Wall Street doesn't know how to how to play Wall Street without a lender of last resort who's going to bail them out when their ship blows up. And there's no one coming to bail them out here. So I think that this is going to cause, you know, the Wall Street firms and Wall Street playbook to kind of completely reassess how they approach this space. And I think it's going to drive a lot of investment and demand for non-custodial products. You know, I heard that like Ledger's best sales day ever was like two days ago. So, you know, I think that these are profound implications for the industry. I think long term, it's going to be good for the industry. Long term, it's going to be good for Bitcoin. But short term, it's going to be brutal. I agree with you, David. It's going to be very difficult. But at the same time, some of the FOMO of these PE for the private equity firms that were investing. I mean, how can you I, I mean, how can you allow no board at all, no oversight, no risk management? It, they deserve, sorry to say, they deserve to be in litigation for not doing the due diligence. This is the second time that the, that the Ontario, I think it's the Ontario's Teachers Fund, has gotten caught in the FOMO. This one in Celsius. So, so and, when, how long do you think it's going to be before that pension fund makes their third investment in crypto? Because It's going to be a long it's time. Long time. It's long time. But, they're not, but they were not making an investment in crypto, and that's the difference. They were making an investment without any due diligence in a centralized company that had a product that had to be happened to be an exchange that was dealing in, in all kinds of digital assets okay and so they did not do any due diligence maybe the next time instead of running to do the shiny object they will take a thesis they will look at what do we want to invest in in this space what are the kinds of management what are the kinds of people maybe we don't want any management maybe we like and learn the idea now 
that what we want to do is a decentralized protocol. And I think that that's really key. They were going for the shiny objects. And going back onto what Caitlin said, too, is that, for example, when Gensler went after BlockFi and flexed his muscles that he got a $100 million settlement, he did not go after the more egregious one there on the block, which was Celsius. If he had gone after and even put a TRO on the kinds of new investments, new cu customers they could get, he would have called that Ponzi scheme already. So he had his subpoena out to Do Kwan, did nothing. He didn't follow up with Celsius when he went after BlockFi. They also had a token. He didn't go, we know, after T FTX. So what we're saying is, is that was failure after failure after failure including whether we, we, we agree there should or shouldn't be, but having a, a, a Bitcoin ETF instead of the futures contract. So I think he failed completely the, the public. And those were a lot of investments all the way down the line that were, were, not, were not controlled and led to a lot of this contagion, not saying it wouldn't have happened in, in FTX in, in any event. I'll, I'll leave it at that. All right, my friends, unfortunately... We're going to have to close this space down. We are going to shift over to this is a space that River is hosting with Dylan LeClaire and Pierre Richard. We're all going to move over there. Feel free to join us. But we're going to have to spin this one down. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much to everyone at BM Pro and to everyone that joined us on stage. Thank you, everyone. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. Bitcoin is for everyone. Lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin Magazine print edition is called The Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.